All right, well, good morning, Docs Church. Guys, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Rob, one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to have you part of the Doxa family today, but as Rudy and Roger kind of mentioned, it's been about six or seven months since we said goodbye and sent off some of our closest friends to go to a place really, really far away from here where it's estimated that somewhere over 95% of the people in Japan have never heard the gospel of Jesus. And, and this type of sending that we hope our church is marked by is really just a big part of who we are as Doxa Church, that we've never aspired in the four years that we've existed, we've never expi- aspired to be a mega church, but our hope is that God would allow us to be a mother church that has a bunch of babies that we call church plants. And, and we're so blessed by God to, to be a part of two churches that we've been able to send out in the last like six to eight months, one to here in Japan, the other in Ann Arbor. We'll talk about that in the, the weeks and the months to come, but I, but I love it, guys. It's so encouraging to see the generosity and the care that our church family has given to our friends really, really, really far from here. And it's been an awesome thing. And Roger and Erica, the entire Japan team, they're doing a really difficult thing, a really hard thing. I talk to Roger almost every week and it's just been a roller coaster, you know, and just being really far away and their family's back here. But they're there convinced that all the sacrifice, all the hardship is worth it if somebody meets Jesus. And this is really what we're all about at Doxa. It's Jesus and people, people meeting Jesus because Jesus loves people. And so we're going to keep giving you updates as the months tick on of of these church plants. But until then, here's what I want to ask you to do. Guys, one of the best things that we can do for our friends in Japan is just to be committed to praying for them. Like go to God on behalf of our friends. Ask God to provide for them. Ask God to protect them. Ask God for salvations. Ask God for endurance and strength to keep going and living like Jesus for the glory of God and the good of Japan. That this is one of the most significant things that we can do for our friends. Okay, so actually before we open up the Bible, we're going to go to the author of the Bible and just pray for our friends right now. So join me and we'll pray for our team in Japan. God, I I love you. Jesus, thank you for your mission to come and to seek us, to serve us, to save us. And Holy Spirit, would you just comfort our friends overseas? Would you empower them? Would you protect them? God, thank you for all the friendships that they're making. Thank you for their courage, their boldness, their love to give away the gospel to people who have never even heard about you. God, we just ask that you would just keep that team unified, that you would keep their eyes fixed on you, Jesus, and would you help them to continue to love the people of Japan like you love us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, grab your Bible. Find your way to Daniel chapter five, okay? We're gonna continue our study through this great Old Testament book, Discovering the Gospel According to Daniel, the good news of God through the man Daniel, who is, we find himself in the ancient city of Babylon, okay? And as we get into chapter five, the gospel message that has been developing through Daniel takes really just an important turn. That if you think about the last four weeks, the first four chapters that we've gone through, we've learned amazing truths about God. In chapter one, we, we learn that God will remember sinful people, that he loves sinful people as we watch Daniel and his friends taken into slavery in Babylon. And then in chapter two, we learn that God will rescue unworthy people through the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus. In chapter three, we learn that God is always with his people, even in the midst of like severe trials and hardships that every single one of us will walk through in our lives. And then last week in chapter four, we learn that God loves and shows mercy even to the most terrible people as we watch King Nebuchadnezzar encounter the glory of God. And all of this so far through the first four chapters is really just a demonstration of the grace and the love of God towards the people that he loves. But today in chapter five, there's another aspect of God's grace for us to learn, and it's this. We're gonna learn that there's actually grace in God's warning of judgment to come for the unrepentant. And so I'll tell you just right off the bat, okay, this might be a little bit of an intense sermon, okay? It's not like the book of Daniel has been all like warm and fuzzies or anything like that, but this is really just kind of like a dark section in the book of Daniel where we see the judgment of God. And what we'll see 
is that chapter five is really the flip side of chapter four. That in chapter four, Daniel uses King Nebuchadnezzar's story of coming to God to affirm that the humble and repentant will reap the rewards of God's grace, no matter how terrible or sinful their past. That no one is too far gone, that no one is too jacked up, that no one is too sinful, that no one is too unfaithful, that they're beyond the reach and the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus, amen? Is anybody thankful for that? Two hands up for me. This is the gospel of Jesus. But this was chapter four, grace and mercy to the humble. Now as we get into chapter five, Daniel uses King Belshazzar to show that the reality of that the prideful and the unrepentant will reap the consequences of judgment no matter how secure they are in the present. And so what we're gonna see is, is two equally evil historical kings demonstrate two equally vital messages. God's complete pardon for the humble, and God's sure judgment for the proud. And so chapter five is God's grace to us in the form of a warning, and this is our big idea today, okay? God's warnings are a form of God's grace. You really need to know this here. His warnings are actually a form of his grace to us, and there's something here for every single one of us, no matter where you're at in your relationship, your view, your faith, in God, okay, so let's get into this. We're gonna walk through this historical count. We're gonna make some pit stops along the way, and then we're gonna end with a couple applications, okay? So chapter five, verse one, here's what we see. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, I'm gonna stop there and just tell you a couple things. Okay, first, guys, the transition from Daniel chapter four to chapter five is really just an abrupt one. And all of a sudden, we get this guy, King Belshazzar, that we've never been introduced to. He just is kind of thrust onto the stage of human history with no introduction at all. But if we look at like extra biblical text, text, historical text outside of the Bible, we know that from chapter four to five, 30 years have passed. In 23 of those years, King Nebuchadnezzar has actually been dead. And while we don't need to know like all the details that unfolded to get like Belshazzar to the throne of Babylon to understand this narrative, guys, it's worth talking about because hear this. This chapter in Daniel that we're looking at for many years was used by secular historians to discredit the book of Daniel and really the Bible as a whole. Because up until 1854, there were no historical records outside of the Bible that talked about a guy named Belshazzar being a king of Babylon. And so this is really problematic for making a case that the Bible is like historically accurate and it's actually valid. But what happened in 1980, or 19, or 1854 is there was an archaeologist. His name was John George Taylor. He was doing some excavation work of a ziggurat in, in Iraq, which is where the ancient city of Babylon was located. And he found something that really unlocked and put the pieces of Daniel 5 together. Take a look at this. It's going to come up here on the screen. But Taylor stumbled upon a number of small clay cylinders with cuneiform writing on them that had, they hadn't been seen or moved for over 2,300 years. And what was found was the writings from the Babylonian king Nabonidus. And Nabonidus, who who ruled Babylon from around 556 BC uh, to 539, he wrote on these cylinders about a man named Belshazzar who's actually his son. And so we we learned of, of Belshazzar's name through this, and along with that and other archaeological finds throughout the years, we now know that after King Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, all right, he, was, he was succeeded by his son, Amel Marduk, and he was in power for a short period of time until he was executed in 560 by his successor, Neriglissar, until around 556 BC. But then he was succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, and then he too was executed by Belshazzar's father, who is Nebuchadnezzar, Okay? And Nebuchadnezzar, from extra-biblical texts, we understand that he had this obsession for this moon god, Sin, 
who was really kind of from his, his homeland, a place called Tamar, and, and Nabonidus, in his obsession with this moon god, he moved out of the capital city of Babylon to a place called Tima, and he lived there, and as he left the capital city of Babylon, he left his son, Belshazzar, to rule as king in Babylon. And so what we learn is that Belshazzar is actually the last historical king of Babylon until it fell in 539 BC. Now, there's some of you that you love to nerd out on history and you're like, this is amazing, wow. Amazing, this is awesome, this is the best sermon ever. There's probably the majority of us that you're sitting here thinking like, this sounds like another boring college lecture that means nothing to real life, right? But here's why I spend any amount of time telling you this. All right, anytime I can show you the nature of this book, I'm gonna take it. You need to understand that this is not primarily a spiritual book. This is not primarily a religious book. This is not primarily like a moralistic book, but this is a historical book that contains the actual history of what happened throughout human history and what will happen into the future. And I mention this because many people today, especially in a place like Madison, where academia is held in like high regard, they will come to the Bible very skeptical, looking for just ways to disprove it and discredit it. And if that's you, I want you to know, guys, that's okay. All right, we value like critical thinking. We love asking the hard questions. We don't just kind of like blindly say, oh, that, that makes sense. But we ask those hard questions. And so if that's you in your posture coming, that is great. It's fine to come like that, but I want you to know that through critical observation and like historical study, it won't allow you to stay like that. Because throughout the centuries, there have been many people who have made it some of their goals in life to point out errors in the Bible to really just disprove it. But as the years go on, and more and more data from archeology span and historical investigation and numismatics and all the other things and all the other disciplines are accumulated, these apparent errors are really just vindicated and all the secular finds actually prove to validate the Bible is historically accurate. And so all that to say, guys, what we're studying through the book of Daniel is real history. It's real history that points to a real God which shows us a true reality and our real need for this God. So that's number one. Secondarily, guys, if you look back to verses one through four, all right, we're seeing King Belshazzar and he's just throwing a big party. And as you picture this party, okay, it's helpful to like picture parties, okay? Don't think prom, all right? Think like frat party. Don't think like punch bowls and gowns and slow dances. Think like togas, beer bongs, and like dresses where the hemline meets the, the neckline, right? Just like it was a wild party, okay? Just completely crazy. And some of the commentators that will look at this historical account, like they believe that upwards of 10 to maybe 15,000 people were gathered here. And again, through archaeology, the excavation, we actually have found this palace, and we found that it's about the same size as the main section of the White House. So this is just a massive wild party. But understand this, okay? It's not just like happening, it's not just a ton of people, but it's also very wicked and ungodly. If you look at verse 2, it mentions Belshazzar's wives and concubines. And so some of these women, they were, they were likely there because like they were on their own free will, but I would, I would or suggest that like many of these girls, maybe the majority of them, were likely captured by war and were slaves. And so today, I mean, we use the words like human trafficking. There were terrible things happening at this party. Everyone was getting hammered. There's a lot of like sexual deviant behavior that's happening at this party. And as these people were drinking, all right, Belshazzar gets this idea. All right, he's, he's the king of the frat house, right? And he's just there, and he gets this idea. And again, I just think it's helpful to picture the scene. This is like a frat guy coming down from a keg stand, and he's like, oh my gosh, I got a great idea. Let's go car surfing. And everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. Great idea, horrible idea, right? But everybody goes with it. And so Belshazzar, he's not really in the chariot surfing. He commands his servants, and he says, go get the golden goblets. Go get those silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from the Jewish temple, so that we can drink out of them and improve our party. And if you remember back to chapter one, this goes back. Do you remember this? Nebuchadnezzar, he goes into Judah, he conquers Judah, he takes some slaves on his way out, but he also raids the temple and he steals their holy vessels that they use to worship God. 
And as he steals these, he brings them back to his temple. He sets them in his temple, basically saying, the gods of Babylon are stronger and greater than the God of Israel. And these, and these vessels have been locked up in, in Babylon, in storage, up until this point. But Belshazzar, this arrogant party boy, just comes out and says, hey, bring them out. He gives everyone a golden goblet. He fills them with some wine. He starts drinking more. And then on top of that, listen to this, look back what he does. He doesn't just drink out of them to get even more buzzed. He starts to make toasts. He's making toasts to these pagan false gods of Babylon. He's really kind of using them to have his own worship service. This is what he's doing. And how many of you are hearing this story and be like, that's probably not good. This is not gonna turn out great, right? Huge mistake. Because if you know your Bible, you know why this is a big deal. Let me just show you this. In Leviticus chapter eight, it speaks about, or in references, the articles that were in the Old Testament temple that Nebuchadnezzar stole and Belshazzar is now using for his party. But look at this, it's up on the screen. Leviticus 8.10. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. So Moses, he anoints all the articles of the temple. And this would have been done to these golden goblets that Belshazzar just brought into his party. And there's this wonderful Bible teacher, her name is Beth Moore, who makes some great observations to explain the gravity of this situation. But Moore points out that the lexical form of the Hebrew word anointed all right, which is used to talk about an anointed one or anointed article or anointed person is this word. It's gonna come up here on the screen. M-A-S-I-Y-A-H. Now, if you just kind of sound that out and say it phonetically, what does it sound like? Messiah, right? This is the word that we get, Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. That when we say the word Christ, referring to Jesus, that comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. And so when we talk about the man, Jesus Christ, Jesus literally means God is our savior. And Christ means the anointed one, the chosen one, the special one. And so when Moses anointed all the articles in the temple, it was setting apart everything in the temple to be strictly used to worship God, treated as holy, separated for God. Now do you see why this is such a big deal? Belshazzar takes something that was holy to be used strictly for the worship of God and he uses it to just get drunk. And on top of that, he uses it to worship other false gods. In this moment, this was complete dishonor to God. Belshazzar is like, literally mocking God. He's spitting in the face of God. And what we're gonna see is the truth that the Apostle Paul shares in Galatians chapter six, where he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In verse five, immediately, immediately. Many times throughout this passage, we have seen the patience of God. As Belshazzar does this, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His, leg, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. How many of you, you've, uh, you've said to your kids or if you're teachers, you've said this to your students or you say this to your friends, you just crossed the line. Right, it's a common phrase that we, we use. We say it all the time to people. You, you cross the line. God essentially shows up to Belshazzar and said, you just crossed the line. You done messed up. And I know that some of you, you kind of live your life kind of wondering where God's line is. 
Like, how far can I go? And you keep pushing forward. Not kind of knowing, but you're just like, it's, it's probably a little bit further. I can live a certain way. I can do a certain thing. Like, and you're wondering. I don't, I don't know where God's line is, but I want to tell you this, guys. As we look at this, wherever God's line is at, Belshazzar just found it. And for us, I want you to see this as a gracious warning that God does have a line, and we don't want to find it. And God shows up, and a hand shows up, and writes something on the plaster wall during the party. And again, through archaeology, when they excavated and unearthed this palace, they found plaster walls, white plaster walls. And so I I say that again, that this is not spirituality. This is actually history. And this hand shows up and writes on this wall opposite the lampstand. So in this moment, right, there's, there's kind of like a spotlight on this party on this wall where this hand is showing up writing. And all of a sudden, like, no one's singing Def Leppard, pour some sugar on me anymore. Like, it just dies. The party dies out. Belshazzar's just kind of sitting there, and he's like, man, did somebody spike this beer? Like, what am I seeing? Like, what in the world? And he's freaked out. His color changes, his legs give out. All right, some commentators literally translate the words here to mean that he lost control of his bowels. All right, so he's so alarmed that it literally like scares the poop out of him, right? This is what he is going on here. And once again, he's like, I don't know what to do. Call the wise men for the third time. These wise men, they're gonna get it right the third time, right? They come in the first time. Sorry, can't help you, very wise. Come in the second time. Wow, this is crazy, can't help you, but we are wise. Call them the third, they don't do anything. They never do anything, but I want you to look at verse five for a moment. The finger of God that writes on the wall. So we have an extremely arrogant guy who disregarded God, and all of a sudden he encounters God. And let me just say this. Like Belshazzar, I don't think it's a stretch that we tend to take ourselves seriously, and this is not for like those of you who are not Christian. I'm talking to the Christians here. I think we tend to take ourselves very seriously and take God very lightly. That when the Bible talks about like fearing God, I don't really know if we have like a proper understanding of like the awe and the power of God. And I don't know if we view God like that, but Belshazzar, in this moment, he sees the power of God and it terrifies him. And he sees it through this hand, specifically the finger of God that wrote on the wall. And theologically, we call this an anthropomorphism, all right, that we learn throughout the Bible that God is spirit, all right, that he's not a man, but throughout the Bible, it will use human language and God will use human imagery to portray truths about himself. And the finger of God here is really just portraying the power of God. And again, if you're familiar with your Bible, you've heard this language before. You've heard about the finger of God referenced many times throughout the scriptures. I'll show you a few. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, it was the finger of God that brought miraculous plagues and took down the oppressive, unjust Egypt that enslaved people. In Exodus 31, 18, it was the finger of God that wrote on the stone tablets for the Ten Commandments. In Psalm 8, 3, it was the finger of God that is talked about creating the heavens. In Luke eleven twenty, Jesus cast out many demons and he said, it is by the finger of God. And here, The finger of God just shows up in power. But here's the point. God is all-powerful, and he's all-sovereign, and he's king, and he's judge, and he's good, and he's loving, and his power should humble us. Because what seems impossible to us or miraculous to us is light work for God. With his finger, he can do anything. And as we see him and get to know him through the scriptures, it should cause pride in us to dissipate because we realize our position under him. It's what we talked about last week, that God is God and we are not, that we are loved by him and we are seen by him and we are helped by him and we are heard by him, but we have a reverence and a respect and a sense of awe at his greatness as God, the creator and the king, that he's powerful where we are so weak and through his finger, he is about to take down an entire kingdom, that what took centuries and generations to build, God is gonna move it away and take it down with his finger, and this should honestly just humble us. But it's not just about like humbling us and making us feel lowly, because it it should also empower us. 
And it should cause hope and trust to arise in us as we realize that our God is not impotent. And through Jesus, he fights for us. And so very, very real, like you guys might be, some of us might be in a place where you're going through really tough times and you don't see a way out. And you're like, I'm suffering, there is no way out, I'm helpless, I don't have any hope. I want you to know that God is powerful and he can show up and he oftentimes does and there is always a way out. And if you need to be reminded of this, go back to our sermon on Daniel chapter three, that God is able and he is powerful. It's all through Jesus. And so Belshazzar, he sees the power of God. He's trying to figure it out. Now look at verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom whom the spirit of the holy gods, whom is the spirit of the holy gods, In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are the Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah. Okay, so the king just kind of sees Daniel walk in and he takes a shot at him. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, the queen is just telling me how great you are. You're one of the exiles, right? Those guys that we made a slave. Okay, just to be clear, that's what he says to him. Verse 14, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third, the third ruler in the kingdom. So no one knows what this writing means, but the queen who historically, we actually don't really know who this woman is, but we know it's not Belshazzar's wife, because if you look back to verse 2, it talks about his wives and his concubines being there. So this is either Belshazzar's uh, mother or grandmother. But regardless, she remembers Daniel from the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And as she thought about, she's seeing Belshazzar and everybody's freaking out, and she's like, she's thinking about like who can help in this moment. She goes, hey, there's a guy I know a guy named Daniel who has the spirit of God. If anyone can help, it's him. And guys, this is so interesting, okay? If you think back to Daniel chapter four, three times Nebuchadnezzar the king said that Daniel had the spirit of God. And then here, the queen mother says the same exact thing. But here's what I want you to see, okay? Nebuchadnezzar and this queen saw the spirit of God in Daniel. He didn't hide his faith. He lived it. And as he lived his faith, They saw the love and the power of his God through his life. Doxa, one of the things that I regularly pray for myself and for this church family is that you and I would live our faith openly and publicly and unashamedly like Daniel. This is the Christian life. And I know that some of you, you have a a, a wrong belief in your head that has been passed down from somebody else that says that our faith should be a personal and private thing. But when we look at Daniel here, and really when we look at the Bible as a whole, we see that faith is indeed personal, that it's not your parents' faith that will save you. It's not that you're a Christian because you come to church with your boyfriend. It's, not, it, it's no one else's. It's got to be personal. It's, it's got to be you coming to Jesus, loving Jesus, following Jesus. It's very personal in that way. But hear me on this. It's also public. I mean, this is the whole idea of the Great Commission, This is Acts 1.8. This is God's plan to love and to save the people that he loves. It's by his people going out into the world, living like Jesus and sharing the gospel in a very public way so that the people God loves can hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And here in Babylon, everyone knows who Daniel's God is. Everyone knows who Daniel worships. Next week, we're going to see that everyone knows who Daniel prays to, who he serves. But the truth is, 
just like Daniel, the pressure of culture is real. And I'll remind you, guys, that much like Daniel, we live in a type of Babylon. We live in a Babylon where there's constantly temptations to live our lives in ways that are in opposition to who God is and what God says. They're surrounding every single one of us at every point of the day. And we're also in a time where we're gonna experience pressure to not have our faith be public so we don't have to experience kind of like the negative effects of people looking at us weird or saying something about us or labeling us as something. But here's the issue. If we don't live our faith publicly, then people won't know that we know God and when they need God, they won't call us because they don't know that we know him. Do you understand that? Daniel lives his faith publicly and all of a sudden this big problem happens in Babylon. People are freaking out, they don't know what to do, they have this thought, we need God. Hey, there's Daniel, he knows God. Let's call him, he can help us. Guys, this is the goal. This is our life, that people know that we know God, so when, they, when God comes knocking on their life and when they finally are humbled and brought down, they know where to look. Guys, this just happened to me this week. I got an email from a guy that I never have met before, and it was a short email. He said, hey, my name is so-and-so, you don't know me. And then he was just like, bottom line, my life is upside down right now. It's falling apart, I'm in a really bad place. I think I need God. Somebody I know knows you and knows of your church. Can you call me and help me? We should be living our lives like Daniel, where people know that we know God. And like Daniel, though, right? Not that we're arrogant, not that we're Bible thumpers, but the primacy of love in the life of a Christian. This is how we need to live our lives, of faith publicly. And so Belshazzar, he asks Daniel for help with the writing on the wall. He promises him the third spot in the kingdom. So this is under his dad, Nabonidus, and himself. And he's like, here, you can take the third spot. And then verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another. Okay, so Daniel, he's got a little bit of an attitude right here. He's like, I don't need your, your crown, I don't need this, it's all gonna come, come tumbling down in a few hours anyway, so it's not like a promotion or anything like that. But he says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, ki- kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it to whom he will. Remember, this was last week, chapter four. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. I want you to circle this. Though you knew all this, you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God whose hand is your breath and whose all of your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And so, so Daniel, he's around 80 years old here. All right, so again, just picture this. Frat party just died. An 80-year-old guy walks in. And he's looking at this young guy, and he's just saying, son, you have no idea what you just did. You have no idea how serious this is. You've messed up. You've dishonored God. You're prideful. Let me tell you a story. And he starts by giving the story of Belshazzar's grandpa, Nebuchadnezzar. And he says in verse 22, you knew this story 
and you knew everything that happened. Daniel said, you knew what God said. You knew what God did. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You saw how he responded. You knew all of that, but you didn't listen. You heard it, but you didn't listen. You didn't respond. And now, because of that, because your heart, heart was hard and you're very arrogant and you're dishonoring God, you're not listening to God, you're not learning from anybody, judgment is coming. There's consequences here. And you could look at this, and maybe if you kind of look at this and you're newer to the Bible and you're like, I don't like this about God, why would he do that? Like, why would he judge somebody like that? I thought God was loving. He is loving. Because do you realize how patient God is? It's been 150 years. 150 years that God has been warning Babylon. He just wanted people to listen and to turn but they wouldn't. They were like, I don't believe God. I don't believe the Bible. None of this is true. 150 years that if you look at Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 27, God warned what was going to happen here in Daniel 5. Isaiah 15, or 13 was 150 years before this. Jeremiah 27 was about 50 years prior, but no one listened. And the time is over. And what happens in Daniel 5 is really just an intense and difficult section of Scripture. And many people, they don't want to touch this, they don't want to teach about it, they don't want to read it because they see a picture of God's judgment. And that stuff, we don't like that stuff in the Bible. We like the stuff that's like, like positive, encouraging, safe for the whole family, Caleb vibe. We like that stuff. But this stuff, we're kind of like, we get to it and we're like, man, I don't know about, like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't understand it rightly. But Doxa, let me help you with this this morning. God's warning of judgment is grace. His warning of judgment is grace towards sinful, rebellious people that God loves and wants to help and wants to save. It's people like me. It's people like you. And I need you to understand that. It's God's grace that we know about it so we can learn from it and avoid it. And for those of you who are Christians, if you've come to faith in Jesus, where, where Jesus has saved us from our sin, he saved us from the wrath of God, this should honestly, as you hear about this and reflect on this, this should produce some worship, wonder, awe, and praise. As you realize that Jesus has saved you and he has taken you out of the path of the wrath of God and that you don't have the judgment of God on you, the wrath of God on, God on you, because Jesus took it from you. Let this just encourage you and, and allow like worship to well up inside of you. But if you're here and like you haven't come to Jesus, man, we love you enough to teach this section of the Bible because this is something that you need to understand. And this warning of judgment, I want you to know this is not for your condemnation, it's for your salvation because God loves you. He loves you. And you need to understand that sin is a very real part of your life. It's a very real part of all of our lives. And sin will lead to very real consequences. Judgment, eternal separation from God, which is just the terrible conscious reality of hell because the nature of sin is it separates. It separates us from God and it separates us from each other. And if this goes on forever, this is where we get into eternal separation where we never want to talk about that. And we don't want anybody to go there and to experience that. And this is why we love Jesus so much. And this is why we teach the Bible the way that we do because it is good for us, not for condemnation, but for salvation. And if you haven't come to Jesus, you just need to understand that this is a warning of judgment. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when you come to him, he takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness, and he takes us out of the path of the wrath of God that is coming for sin. And what Daniel is saying here is that the problem with your grandfather was pride. He became hard-hearted, but he eventually humbled himself and came to God. And Daniel says, God has been so patient with you and he's warned you, and he's wanted you to learn, but you've hardened your heart and you just didn't. In fact, you've even gone a step further in sin and dishonor to God, and here's what's next, verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed, mene, mene, tekel, and parzin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Okay, it took generations to build the Babylonian empire. It takes a minute for God to take it down. Verse 27, tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 
He says that God has seen your life. He has seen your sin. He's not pleased. Your sin has not been taken care of. So, verse 28, Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And these were two joint military forces that came together to take down Babylon as God's judgment. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in chapter 2. Do you remember this? The head of gold, the chest, and the two arms of silver. The silver kingdom represented by the two arms were the Medes and the Persians. This all unfolded just like God said it would. And then verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Belshazzar never surrenders to God. Judgment comes and he's killed by his enemies that invaded that night. Doxa, sin is very serious. Judgment for sin is very real. So let me end with this. Two lessons to learn from Daniel chapter 5. First, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says this, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable, does that sound familiar? (laughs) Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Here's what you need to know. We are God's holy vessels. We are God's holy vessels. And I need to explain this to you, okay? God took it very seriously when Belshazzar brought out the holy vessels. These golden cups from the temple and he used them in this like this sacrilegious way. And we can look at this and we can say, sure, that's a bad idea. Lesson learned. Don't take things that are meant for worship and use them in ungodly ways. Like, got it loud and clear. I would never do that. I'm not gonna worship any other gods with any gold cups. Can't afford a gold cup. Great. Lesson learned, right? I want you to understand this. We can look at these people And we could kind of say like, man, I can't believe they would do that with God's cup. God would look at us and he says, I can't believe that you would do that with your body. The moral of this story is don't mistreat God's holy vessels. Christian, the way that you live your life in your physical body matters. God cares because the spirit of God lives in you. And we don't have these holy cups like they did back then, but our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, God actually cares how we live with our bodies. If you remember back to our study through 1 Corinthians, this was Paul's big thing in chapter 6. Those people were living crazy lives. They were using their bodies for sexual immorality and all kinds of sinful things, thinking that it didn't matter. And the Apostle Paul comes into Corinth, and he intensely opposes that. And he says, don't you know that your bodies are significant, that the Holy Spirit resides in you. And he says, don't take your body, which is a holy vessel, and use it in ways that dishonors God. It's a big deal. And so Christian, just let me ask you this. Are you treating your body the way that Belshazzar treated the golden cups? Like, do you understand, like, the things that you look at, the things that you engage with, your pursuit of companionship and the way that you can give away your body and take other people's bodies, like that stuff actually matters to God. You are a vessel, a holy vessel, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you use your body in ways that honors God and glorifies God and worships God or do you use it to dishonor him with sinful pursuits and behavior? It all matters Paul talks about clean and dirty vessels. And the truth is, because of our sin on our own, we all are dirty vessels. And when we're dirty, when we see ourselves as dirty vessels because of sin, we cannot be in the presence of God because he is holy, he is perfect, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. That when we dishonor our bodies and treat them like Belshazzar treated these cups, it actually affects our relationship with God. We just need to know this. There's grace in the warnings. But here's what I want you to know. Someone in here needs to hear this. It doesn't matter how dirty you've made your vessel, Jesus is the one that can make it clean, okay? This is the truth that we need to know. Jesus is the one that can make you clean. And this is so important because what tends to happen is that some people think, okay, I've lived in ways that have really dirtied up my vessel. I've messed up, 
I'm dirty now. And you can sit there and you can think that, man, I, maybe I, I can't come to Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm really dirty. I certainly can't serve God because I'm really, really dirty. And I know that there's people in this room that you have those thoughts, but you also have the thought like you're not even freed from your past sin because you're holding on to the dirt of your past that you think, man, I can't believe I did that with that person. I can't believe I watched that. I can't believe I engaged with that. And it keeps you from serving God and running after God because you're bound to your past. I want you to know that Jesus comes in and he doesn't just take your sin, but he cleanses you. He makes you pure, holy. This is the greatness of Jesus. And so if you're in that place and you're, you're carrying the condemnation from your past, I want you to know that Jesus is here, that Jesus loves you. He wants to make you clean and you can just open up your hands and give it to him. Repent of your sin and he will make you clean. He will. Listen to me. We just got done studying 1 John. What did Jesus' best friend John say? He said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our, of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right? This is Jesus. The one thing Belshazzar doesn't do is turn to God. And so he's never made clean. And judgment came as a result. We're God's holy vessels. And then number two, the last thing. Because I want you to know that sin makes us numb to danger. It makes us absolutely numb to danger. As as Belshazzar threw this party, the Medes and the Persians were camped outside the walls of Babylon. He was likely seeing them. I mean, days before this, he had just, the Medes and the Persians had just defeated Nabonidus, Belshazzar's dad. And they were coming upon Babylon, threatening to do the same thing. But Belshazzar, in his pride and sin, he was numb to danger that lurked outside the city. He just thought, we're good. Let's have a party. Nothing can happen to us. We have these big walls. The Euphrates River literally runs through our city underneath these walls. We have storehouses filled with food that can last us for years. Nothing bad will ever happen to us. And he ignored the warnings thinking that there was no danger. Have you been in those places of sin where it just kind of numbs you and you forget about the destruction of sin, the seriousness of sin, the judgment that's coming from sin? Belshazzar is just numb to it. And Daniel, for the last 70 years, has been saying, you need to listen to God. He's not joking around. Judgment will come for your sin. But Belshazzar and his family just kept saying, "Uh, hey, we don't believe the Bible. We don't believe God. We don't think he's going to do it. Doctor, let me just tell you this, and I say this in all humility and love, as a man who is grateful that someone told me this. Everyone who dies and stands before God without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ after hearing about the Lord Jesus Christ is in the same position as Belshazzar. God told you there's judgment for sin. God told you that there's sin in your life. God told you that there's a heaven and a hell. God told you that there's life beyond the grave. And some people will think, hey, that's not true. And some people will think, hey, that's, that's fine. When I get older, I can think about that. I got plenty of, t- plenty of time. Guys, I want you to know that this is the Babylonian mindset. This is the spirit of Babylon that will tell you, don't worry about God. And if you do want to do that, do it sometime later. But let me just say this, guys. I would be remiss not to. And honestly, it would be like the height of hatred to not say it. We're all going to die at some point. And we will all stand before King Jesus. And there will be an actual real judgment. And there will be an actual eternal destination for every single one of us. And Daniel 5 is showing us that the Bible is true and God will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. We need to be forgiven. We're all unholy vessels. We need to be changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. And so ultimately, the big idea of this whole story is that we all need Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you know that he loves you? Have you asked him to fill you with his spirit to make you a holy, clean vessel? If you would not do that, you're following in the example of Belshazzar. 
God, as a father, he's just saying, I love you. Don't follow his example. Follow the example of Daniel, who repented of his sin, recognized his position under God, went to God. God made him clean, and he had the Spirit of God in him that sealed him as a child of God. Belshazzar saw the hand of God right on the wall. Jesus felt the hand of God nailed on the cross. Daniel saw the king endure the wrath of God for his sin. Our king, Jesus, endured the wrath of God for our sin. Belshazzar drank the cup and received judgment. Jesus went to the cross and he drank the cup of our sin and judgment for us so we could receive what Belshazzar did not. Forgiveness, cleansing, relationship, a new life, and eternity with God. And this is what we remember every time we celebrate communion, that it's all about Jesus and that he loves you. If you don't know Jesus, you need Jesus. Come to Jesus. This is why this whole thing even exists. He loves you and he's waiting for you. Come to him. Acknowledge that he is God, that you are not. Confess your sin and ask Jesus to take your sin and give you his Holy Spirit and follow him. Hey, grab your communion cup. I'm gonna invite you to stand. As we take communion together, if you have put your faith in Jesus, if Jesus is in fact your king, you love him and follow him, this makes total sense for you. If you haven't, you can just observe. But if you've become a Christian today, take this with joy because here's what it means. As you hold that bread in your hand, you're remembering the body of Jesus Christ. That while we were running away from God, God came running after us as the man Jesus Christ, and he ran straight to us, straight to the cross on our behalf. And his body was literally broken apart for us. And so, Doxa, this is the body of Christ that was broken for you. Remember Jesus, thank Jesus, love Jesus, celebrate Jesus as you take this. It's the body of Christ. Take it and celebrate. juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It's the blood of Jesus that washes us clean, that makes us pure, holy vessels. As you think about Jesus and his death on the cross for you, remember that it was for you. And thank him as you remember this. It's the blood of Christ that has been shed for you. Doxa, we have a great God. Let's worship like Daniel. Let's sing to him. Let's thank him for his great grace.